Hello, this podcast is sponsored by Now Alchemy. Now Alchemy is an amazing company that has formulated the most powerful substance in our body that was taken way back in the Egyptian era known as the food of the gods. Not only does it bring in balance, happiness, and increase your intuition, it decalcifies your pineal gland, which opens up your third eye and increases your light body, allowing your consciousness and your awareness to be open and aware of everything that is going on. The high-level mineral source, which we need today on our planet, is so important. With the fact that the earth itself has been overturned so many times with all of the farming industries, that we do not have access to the rich ormus that is available in this planet. And thanks to now alchemy, we do. We now have the sustenance that our body needs that is brought in from the Himalayan mountains and the Dead Sea. Ormus, which is powerful energy source that moves through your body and brings together a whole synthesis of information to every part of your body. By bringing this mineral source, you are nourishing your body at a cellular level. I love the company for what it stands for and its ethics. And it has been a sponsor of Ancient Wisdom Today podcast since the beginning. And that's why I always ask the tribe to support the sponsors who are sponsoring this show because I go through each of the sponsors with strong ethics and integrity to make sure that whatever they are bringing forth is in align to the planet and into you and for all of us so that we can grow and have health and wellness in our lives. Ormus's company spends a lot of time with advanced scientists, naturopaths, and doctors and herbalists to formulate a sourcing technique that brings in the highest quality of organic ingredients from the most mysterious and desolate countries in order to bring the magic in the bottle, which is Ormus. Now alchemy is not just for health and wellness community, but for all people seeking to become their greatest version of themselves. And I've been taking this product for many months, and it has been such an addition to my shamanic love that I bring to the world. And how I bring love into the lives of people is by keeping myself healthy and happy and lifted and shifted. By bringing the highest source of minerals in my body, I am able to hold a high vibration of energy and light when doing healing work or when I'm speaking to large groups of people and when I'm here lit and doing Ancient Wisdom Today podcasts. So I invite you to experience the amazingness of Ormus. They have so many powerful selections that you can choose from, from 24-karat gold Ormus to Shilajit to nano-enhanced CBD to Elysium, each bringing a different blend of energy to your body. And I honestly say that this company is really changing the lives of people. Ever since I've mentioned them and shared them with all of the people in the tribe, I've been getting letters and letters of people's lives that have been changing. And not to mention the fact that those who have had suffered so many times from PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, confusion, fog brain, and all of these other symptoms that have been plaguing us because of the onslaught of aggressive energies on our planet, by taking Ormus, these things are cleared, neutralized, and allowing you to have more balance and groundedness in who you are, as well as enhancing your mind so that you're able to think clearly and have a stronger focus. You can get Ormus by contacting www.n.com. 
www.nowalchemy.com. That's www.nowalchemy.com. And if you use the code SHAMAN, you'll get 11% off every purchase you make. I'm so happy, tribe, that we are putting beautiful things in our body because putting beautiful things in our body is putting beautiful things in our mind and our spirit. And that allows us to shine and radiate our truth in this world as leaders. I love you. Enjoy the share. Human beings have been sharing stories for hundreds of thousands of years. And with those stories came the emotional, spiritual, and physical knowledge of the ancients. Shaman Durek is a sixth-generation shaman, an evolutionary innovator, and a women's empowerment leader. He's here to bring forth the ancient wisdom of our elders to help heal and bring happiness into our modern society. We're sharing ancient knowledge in modern times in order to put the power back in people's hands. Welcome to the tribe. Hello, tribe, and welcome to Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. And I love you. So anyone who hasn't told you today that they love you, let me be the first. I love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. You're so amazing and you're so powerful. And I'm so happy that we are lit leaders bringing legacy and leaving legacy to all of the children that are coming into this amazing planet Earth. And we get to stand tall together in this beautiful tribal circle. This is the greatest gift ever is to be able to witness the power of all of us coming together in our own abilities and the way in which we share and the way that we provide information so that we can grow and continue to prosper in every single way. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being on earth. Thank you for being alive. And thank you for being so powerful. And I'm really excited because my brother, who is literally, and when I say like my brother he is my brother. He, we have so many parallels mm. and connection, and he's such a gift to the planet. And from the first day I met him, I met him at Mind Body Greens Revitalize. And the moment I heard him speak on stage and the moment that I've seen him and the way he carries himself and just the, the realness. And you know, that's what it's about, Tribe. It's about realness. And just connecting with him was like literally being home and just having family time. And I'm very close to him and his wife and um, I love them so much. And I'm so happy that he's in the studio with us today on Ancient Wisdom Today for today's share. So I want to welcome everybody to the amazing powerful thought leader, innovator, creative genius, Dr. Adi Jaffe. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, man. And I I couldn't agree more with the with the feeling of, you know, literally feeling like we're somehow connected and related from long before that meeting a couple of years ago at Mind Body Green. So thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to have you on our podcast and I'm really excited for this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things for me is just, you know, everything that you represent. I love, I love going on my IGs and like seeing you on and then just going on and listening to you. <laughs> I love it. You know, because it's one thing to listen to someone who's like a doctor who's talking about like, you know, addiction and all these things going on. But it's another thing to talk to someone who just doesn't give a shit about all that other stuff. Yeah. Right? And it's just real and just brings it in and hones it in. So tell me, I just want to, because I just want the tribe to, to yeah. really begin to understand who you are, why you are. 
how did your journey begin in 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 your field and in your path? Yeah, so you know, I mean, it's always funny to try to figure out where the journey really, really started. Yeah, of course, because you know, if I have to point where it started with drugs, was I became a meth addict when I was about twenty one. Um, but I started with alcohol and drugs when I was fourteen, and if I step back even before that. I was looking for a way to fit in and a way to feel like I belonged with other people, which I just really hardly ever felt like I had for as long as I can remember, like since I was seven or eight years old. And until 14, I was just kind of anxious and weird and always trying to make everybody happy. And then at 14, somebody handed me at a sleepover camp, they handed me a bottle of vodka. And I, I felt weird about it because I didn't really want to drink. That didn't feel like a right, a good thing to do. But I also was not going to stick out. I already felt awkward enough, and like I stuck out everywhere. So I just drank, and I had um, like three or four swigs off that bottle. And twenty minutes later, I just felt fine. And like, if anybody here listening can relate to this, like I felt fine for the first time. I was dancing. There were, and I wasn't dancing and not thinking about what everybody else is thinking about my dancing. I was talking to girls. It was so much easier to just be. And that started a quest that ended with that meth addiction of me just wanting to be okay, you know? And the drugs got more serious. The problems that came along with it became more and more serious. I, I became a drug dealer. I started selling weed when I was in college because I got arrested for shoplifting and I didn't want to talk to my parents. So I sold drugs to make money for the lawyer, which... I don't know if that's entrepreneurial or just crazy, but it's something in the middle of those. And I think it's a good, I think it's a fine line between both. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, I don't want to tell my parents that I got arrested. I'll start selling weed, start selling weed, made money to pay for that lawyer. And then realized selling weed was making me a good amount of money. So I kept selling that. And when I moved to LA, I really, I got into harder drugs. I mean, we were doing ecstasy on a regular basis, but meth became my thing. And I became a daily meth user by the time I was 22. And all day, every day, he was using meth, selling meth, selling coke, selling ecstasy, selling anything else we can get our hands on. It it got me. I mean, I just have to say for one second, yeah. And I and I'm saying this because I got to be real about it. Yeah. But didn't the burn feel so good? Snorting the meth, yeah. Oof. I mean, so it's it's funny, right? It's like it's called glass, right? Meth yeah. is called glass, and it's yeah. like, partially because of what it looks like. But then, yeah, when you snort it, it feels like somebody took a dagger. The first time you do it, you're scared because it literally feels like somebody just took a knife and just stabbed you in the brain. It goes so deep. And then, yes, after that, just like heroin addicts talk about, you know, I've never shot up, but heroin addicts talk about when they put a needle in, that that puncture, the moment it goes in feels really good. It's the same thing with that stabbing. Even though, it, let's be honest, it keeps feeling like there's a needle going into your brain. I loved it. Yeah. I was like... Get ready for the burn. Yeah. You know, but I, I got addicted to that burn and then what came after, you know? I, you know, I tell people, somebody who's never used meth and has just watched Breaking Bad, which is pretty much what my life was like. Breaking Bad was my life for about four or five years. And I tell people, I tell Sophie all the time, that she, when, whenever we talk about stories, I tell her what it was like. And when I say that we were up for three, four, five days, she goes, well, what would happen in the middle? Like, when would you rest? And I go, no, I don't think you understand what I'm saying. I mean, like, I would come to from whatever I passed out before and I would wake up for four or five hours, I'd be okay. We'd start using. And then 
literally 72 to 96 hours later, I would pass out again. And hopefully I was in a bed or on my couch or like at somebody else's house, but my body would give out. By the way, one time, because I don't think I've ever told this story publicly, but one time my body passed out at the wheel of the car. I was driving, I dropped off one of the guys who used to sell for me, so I dropped him off at his house. And then I was on Sepulveda. I turned from palms right on Sepulveda. And I remember nothing after that until after National, which if you know anything about that area of the world, if you don't, Google air it, Google map it. It's like two blocks. I drove in a meth blackout for two blocks until my car veered into a parked car. And I came to hitting the other car. I stopped. I got out. I had a lot of drugs on me. I like threw the drugs over a fence in case the cop showed up, found the first tow truck that came by, paid him cash to get the car out of there and just escaped. But I would literally pass out. And that was honestly, that was the life I lived until I got arrested. I didn't, I don't think I knew that it was going to ever end. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I had my own meth experience, you know, and a lot of other things that I did. And it's really funny because sometimes when people hear, oh, I'm a shaman and you're a doctor, they think you guys did drugs. I know. You know, and I think it's really good for people to hear that because the people who are in that world know that there is a way out and there is a way, there is a redemption at the end of that journey. But I'll be honest with you. Like, I remember in my dad's house, I literally had... Uh, and I, I moved in two drug dealers into my dad's house. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Oh, you mean you don't want them to have to come to you? you yeah. Might, they might as well live there. Just live in my house. We had this huge house and my dad was working at the time. He was doing a lot of work for stuff in LA and building these different hotels and stuff. And I was running a, a training, which was really funny because I was like in two, I was two different people. I was like the guy who was like doing all the drugs and partying and stuff. And like, and then I also had like a class of women that I was teaching in magic and, and shamanism to and oh, like wow. doing, yeah, it was How brilliant. I was about, I would say 17 years old. Amazing. And what was interesting about it was that in each bathroom, you could go any bathroom in the house. I had a mirror and I had a string tied to a, a to like a big pen, you know, but like, had sure. her, like everything. Literally, I had everyone in my house partying all the time, nonstop partying. And it was like, it felt so socially accepting. Like, oh my God. I felt like on top of the world. Like, I could talk to anyone, do anything. I had no fear to just let my truest self come out. Mm, you know, it's funny. I, so I was always awkward. And then when I sold drugs, one of my favorite things was everybody wanted me around, which felt as good as the drugs felt, right? I would walk into a house and people would be yelling in the house, like, Adi's here, Adi's, everybody, everywhere, all over, because they've been waiting for me for two hours to show up with the party favors. And, I had a recording studio that I'd painted all black and I'd put like fog machines and lights. It was like a club that I had that I could run a party at whenever I wanted to. And I had DJ equipment because I used to DJ. And yeah, we would just, we would either, people would either show up there to buy from us or we would send out, I would send out runners to go sell. But I lived a party for like four to five years. It's just that because I was the dealer, not your version of it, it was also work. So first of all, I made a lot of money and I didn't come from a lot of money. My dad was a physician. And so later on in life, he made good money. But when we lived in the States, we were kind of broke. And so it was my way of actually carrying five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 in my pocket for the first time ever. And I didn't really know what that felt like. But more than that, you just hit on something that was really important for me at the time. I felt accepted. And I always fight with this because 
you said, you know, I talk about this publicly now exactly for that reason. I want people listening right now who have a brother struggling, a father struggling, a husband, or you're struggling yourself to know this version, this chapter of your story has to, that doesn't have anything to do with the ending if you wanted to, if you do the work and I did a lot of work and you did a lot of work to get to this place. But what I've also realized, I was thinking about this on the ride over here, was the person that I was at the peak of that. Now, the drugs were fucking me up and there was all this stuff. Can I swear? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Right. Oh my God. This is Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. Uh, all right. So um, <laughs> we keep it real 1000 up in here. Uh, I love it. Good, 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 good. I could do that. So the person that I was in those moments, not at the peak of messed up, right? Because like when you are loaded up with ecstasy or mushrooms or acid, there are parts of yourself that are coming out maybe, but you're also really disoriented and distorted. But the parts of me, when I would show up in moments, were the real me. It's just because I'd come to this place in life that I'd never been at before, which is people would be with me. People would be willing to hang out with me and, and want to be around me because of where I was and what I had. And so I didn't have to pretend to be somebody else anymore. And I got to say, that's the one lesson that I was able to take out of dealing was that, oh shit, like at that time in my life, I felt okay as me because I had enough money, enough drugs, and enough guys or girls, depending on like, what you were looking for based on the crew of people you're hanging out with that people would come. And I didn't have to pretend to be different than who a D really was. And when I got out of dealing, that completely disappeared because we're going to talk a little bit about the experience out of this. But, you know, I had to go to jail, I had to go to trial, I had to go to rehab. And there was a, a time where that disappeared, that a D disappeared. I, the, a new motivated version of me showed up that was really gung-ho about changing his life and all that. But the freer, spirited, motivated, and caring version of me that would show up in the middle of that, the one that felt okay regardless of what other people thought of him, that actually kind of went away for a little while because I felt so damaged. I mean, when my house of cards came crushing, crashing down, it was like destroyed. It was like somebody wiped out the, the deck. But and, before your house of cards came down, because I want to stay there for a little bit. Yeah. And the reason why is because a lot of people don't understand that even through the redemption aspect that comes after you go through the, the hitting that rock bottom, you know, and then like looking up and going, oh, I have to climb out of this hole. The whole aspect of the social acceptance, being in a world that we are in a constant pressure cooker of bullshit that is constantly being directed to us of like how we have to live, we have to make money to survive, like, you know, all this survival fears and the, yeah. and the anxieties and everything. And then fitting into these social groups and so forth. And, you know, for me, having this pressure on me since I was a little kid of being the shaman, having these abilities, not wanting these abilities, and then like wanting to be the rebel against everything and then finding house music, finding the DJs, finding the club scene. I remember one time I was literally speaking to a group of people. There was this group that came and they created this thing called Wicked, big sound system. And I would speak to people in these spiritual ways. And this one girl goes, she looked at me and she's actually a really good friend. And she looked at me and she goes, I have a question for you. Are you high right now? Are you, are you on crystal meth right now? Cause you're, you're like, what, like, are you okay? Right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm on crystal meth. <laughs> I mean, hello. Totally. <laughs> you know, that's funny. I know wicked. Like we, um, 
I w- in the back in the day, do you ever go to like? Does your mama know in any of those after yeah, of hour course. clubs? That's amazing. Like like Garth and Yena and all yeah. of them. They're all my close friends. That's awesome. So yeah, that was that was our scene. You know, it's funny. I was again, I was talking to Sophie the other day, and yeah, there was acceptance at a level that I think a lot of people don't even know and understand. By the way, some of the people who would buy from me though, they would feel okay and accepted when they were with me, but I could tell that as soon as they walked out my door. They had to go and put their face on. Because mm-hmm. um, I would have a husband and wife team or a boyfriend and girlfriend who would buy from me at separate times and would make me swear not to tell the other person. And I'm like, if you only fucking knew, you guys would get along better. Like, you're both trying to hide each other's lives from, from one another. And I'm, part of what I'm saying is, I, I might have had an inkling of this without drugs. And when I was 18, I would say this logically. But the feeling that I was really okay, regardless of who I am, as I am, really got built up in a completely different way through this experience. Because I was, you know, I always kind of like to say this, it's kind of a point of pride and it probably sounds insane to anybody listening, but maybe not. I was proud that like, I never cut my drugs. I never tried to like charge people too much. People came to me because they knew that they would get good stuff regularly, etc. And it was that was kind of like our little agreement. Like you're, They knew that they were supporting my life and supporting my habit. They knew that. And I would make them feel good. And that was kind of the, the agreement that we all had. I always joked that my best friends at the time were strippers. Because other drug dealers knew what I was going through and strippers know what a drug dealer's life is like. Because I feel like for a lot of strippers, that is the equivalent, right? Like guys sell drugs for a living and because they have a commodity that people want and they get cash for it. And in our world, in my world, I was a king, like ruler of my universe. It was like a kind of shitty universe and, you know, everybody was having trouble in it. But in that world, I was, I was king. And the girls that I knew who danced, um, who were literally most of my friends, in their world, they were the queens. Like, mm-hmm. They rule that universe. You walk outside of that and you tell somebody you're a stripper and they look at you like you're insane um, or they look down at you. But we really shared a kinship there where we really understood each other and you know, you asked in the beginning how I got here. That was the point. The point was I just wanted to feel okay. I love you so much. And my love for you is like ever expanding. So the funny thing is, is that I was I had a lot of friends who were strippers, you know, and to this day, one of my friends, she's a doctor. Yep. She was a stripper. Yep. My other girlfriend who was a stripper has become like this amazing big fashion stylist. And, yes. and my other friend who's a stripper, she became a neuroscientist. Love it. And the stripper friends of mine, you know, what I loved about them, even my friends in the red light district in Amsterdam, when I used to go to Amsterdam, because I was friends with a lot of the girls in the red light district, there was like this big community and they all would come and meet. We would all go to the uh, cafes late at night after they would finish their, their jobs. Yeah. And we used to have real talks. They would yeah. be like, they would say things to me like, you know, you were born to be this shaman. Like, are you ever going to like go to it? Like, like they would like break me down to look at stuff. And you know what? It's so interesting because when you say that, it brings back such a nostalgia Mm. to all of the things that I experienced because a lot of my teachers at that time were other drug dealers, other strippers. We had such an understanding of one another. Yeah. You know? There's a power though when you... Look, drug dealing is a really weird occupation. Much like I assume stripping is, right? Like, you have this thing in your hand and there's somebody who wants it because it's going to make them feel good. But you need to build up trust. I mean, you they hold the key to your life because if they decide to tell somebody that this is what you do for a living, your life is destroyed. And you hold the key to their life in, in some way. And 
I will tell you, you know, we had a lot by the time we were, I was done and before I got arrested, you know, we had about 400, 500 customers who would buy from us regularly. And I considered most of them friends. They, they would use what I did to allow them to let go of the hell that was their life. We were like a refuge for them. And I didn't take that lightly. And I don't take it lightly now that I've kind of done a 180 and have weirdly ended up in the exact same role for people just without the thing that I hold in my hand as the substance. Because the discovery in the end is that everybody who came to me wanted what I wanted, which is they just wanted to be accepted. They just wanted to feel loved. They just wanted to feel like they belonged regardless of what they did at work, how much money they made, what car they drove, all the, all the pretending that they did outside. And so, again, there's a huge power in it. And I don't regret a moment of the dealing. I do. There's a piece to me that, that always feels weird about the recognition that there were hundreds of people's lives, some of whom did not work out well, right? I mean, some of the people that I knew ended up in jail. Some of them are still addicted. Some of them died. Um, there's a pain that I carry around around that. Why? Uh, why the pain? Yeah, I mean, first of all, can I call you King Adi? <laughs> <laughs> you know, coming from you, I'm not going to say no, but... I love it. I already see. I mean, you, first of all, you and I would have been friends if oh our paths God, were yeah. crossed. We, we probably went, went to uh, Does Your Mama Know at some point together. Oh, yeah, I've been to all of those parties. I used to come to LA, back to San Francisco, and I used to run the party scene. I did Carefree. I did... All of like the, the end up. I had a fake ID. I used to do all the part. I used to pass out all the ecstasy. I was a dealer for all the ecstasy when ecstasy wasn't even known and MDMA wasn't yeah. even like a. It was just called the happy tab. That's funny. and I did this big party with Lady DeCure and she, you know, Delight. That's Lady DeCure. She came in and I had her, I come on a horse and I had like I did crazy things. Like, I love it. And everyone loved it because yes, I had power. So I would like check people. I'd be like, this guy is not right. He's, I, I would use my powers for that world. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so hilarious. People are like, well, you're, you're not doing these things, but you're using your powers for this. But the interesting thing about it, which I, I have to say, and where, where I will always reflect back, is that I don't have regret. And I, for me, you were the drug dealer. I was the one who was the guy who had all acts. I was the one that all the drug dealers worked for me. Like yeah. they, like I gave them home. I put like my dad had this huge house. I gave them rooms in my home. I gave them money, whatever they wanted to live this great life because my dad was a multimillionaire. I was like, no, like, you know, establishing all of that for yeah. them. So when we went to parties, they wouldn't give anything unless so everyone knew you respect me to get to my dealer. That's funny. I love and it. my dealers always had the best of the best. Yeah. But it's interesting because we, you know, I was caught up, like even today I do these events that I started back then with my friends called Sunset. And it's, we turned it much more into a spiritual event, but Wicked was around and we had like Yena, Garth, we had like, you know, all of the Frankie Knuckles, all these people from New York, from Chicago, from all over, from LA, you know. And the thing that I, that I, when I'm listening to you speak, what really tapped in, and now we have to really dive into this deep emotional place, yeah. right? Is that we were insecure so much to the point that we didn't feel how we belonged in this world. So we created that, that what it did was it gave us that ability to feel comfortable in this world. Yeah. And I see a lot of today when I go to Ibiza and I'm doing this, I see everyone still do, I still people doing that still. People are always doing it. They're always They're doing, doing it right it. now in LA. Yeah, exactly. I'm just, I'm just not part of that world anymore. Right. I go into the party scene, 
I'm, you know, I do avocado and, um, and you know, and um, MTC oil. And I have my, you know, dance. I'll dance to four or five in the morning. Everyone's all lit off of like, you know, the energy and everything. And they're like, you know, how are you sustaining yourself? I'm like, I don't have to do that. I've been there already. I'm old school. I yeah. come from the old school. Like when you go old school, you know what I'm saying? You I know, know what you're saying. <laughs> I do. I know what you're saying. So the thing is, is that the way we can help these people is to help them to understand is that we have to create something because you just said, I feel regretful for, I, I carry that pain from all those people. And even that's not freeing them. Yeah. I don't know if I feel regret. I mean, I might have said that, I don't remember, but I feel the pain for sure. And it's like, look, you know, so I, I worked in the studio and I would kind of live there. And when I say they, I would get fucked up there and then I would pass out on the couch and then I would like <laughs> hook up with some girl and then I would get fucked up. And like, it was this rotating cycle of that. And then people would come in. Now, sometimes people would come in with like the keys to their car and they're like, hey, I don't have money. Can I give you my car for drugs? And I was like, you need to fucking go home and get some sleep. I'm not taking your car. Like, can I give you a necklace for drugs? And there's a piece to me, and maybe that's that is, and that's why I love our conversations. Maybe that is the piece to me that is saying that is kind of stuck in that place and feels like I should have rescued those people somehow, whatever. I would always turn them away. They might have gone to somebody else to get their drugs. I don't know. But there's a piece to me that kind of says, fuck, man, like I was making money selling drugs, right? All the people around me were making money selling drugs because that's that's what I supported. You know, I got the best deals. I got us the best drugs. Like we, I took care of my people, and then some of our crowd kind of crumbled under it. And it's this isn't easy for me to say. I'll say it here. I was thinking, I, I knew I was going to come to a point like this in a podcast for you because I'm relatively humble most of the time. But like, I was a good fucking drug dealer. Like, mm-hmm. I I ruled my shit. I never never owed anybody money. Like, I kept coming up. It wasn't until the arrest that things kind of um, fell apart, but. I would see I don't know how to I don't know how to say this in a in a PC way so I'll just say it there's a lot of people who can't handle it they just couldn't handle it right too much freedom too much access too much money too many drugs and they crumbled and I don't love that I played a part in that for them because I can put up with a lot now in in my life right now I can put up with a lot there are people who just can't and well, I what if you were meant to play that role yeah you know, what if, what if, you know, I always have this thing, I call it, I call it Lucifer's mirror. What if, you know, Lucifer, like everyone talks about Lucifer being this angel that was kicked out of heaven, which I don't believe. I don't believe God does any kind of that kind of behavior. I think humans do. But the whole idea of Lucifer is, Lucifer means the giver of light. And I always say Lucifer's mirror is like anytime you are holding space for people to look at their own reflections and deal with their own demons, Right. And sometimes we play roles, you yeah. know? We play roles in life. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to be the one that abuses you. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to be the one that takes things away from you so you can find your own independence. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to create this environment for you to feel safe in and you might end up losing yourself like in the story of, of uh, what you call Pinocchio, where you end up going to fun land because that's how I basically see it. When I saw Pinocchio, I was like, the, oh, look, that's the, where the they're do- going. The donkeys. Yeah, where they turn into donkeys. <laughs> so, Right? Because you're an ass. You yeah. know, you become an ass and you become an ass to the point where you crumble. Yeah. And that's what you have chosen for. These are your paths. Every you're not responsible for what path people choose. Every that's choice, true. right? Destiny's not by chance, it's by the choices that you make. Yeah, yeah. No, right? I, I, that's true. And I and I do, I mean, if there's a thread throughout my life, is I probably do that for people. I probably put the mirror to their face 
sometimes with drugs on it. But um, I put the mirror to their face and I say, this is what's really going on. And it's funny, even in my relationships now, like with my wife and, and our friends, people tell me all the time, they come to me when they want the real answer. Like other people will hold their hand and coddle them and make them feel nice about whatever's going on. And I'm like, the fuck are you doing? Yeah, that's why I love you. And and I actually really like that role, to be perfectly honest. Like, first of all, I don't know how to do anything else. Secondly, (laughs) I don't really have that much of a choice in it. Secondly, I like being that mirror for people. You know, there are parts like with with my wife that I I work on because in relationship, that can be difficult for people sometimes. When you're really close to somebody, they want, Sometimes they want the blur effect, you know, like when mm. you when you take a picture on like portrait mode and it takes the back and it smooths it out and it gives you nice like uh, a nice face. People want that sometimes. That's why I take my pictures in portrait mode because, you know, 42, I'm, I would like to look like I'm 35 again. But I love playing the the real mirror role for people. And I still do that now at work. I think that's exactly what you're supposed to do. And I think in relationships, because I mean, I had this girlfriend I was dating. Uh, she's amazing. She's opened me up to so much. And she had this thing called the brutal truth. And so anything, anything we talked about, she would tell me exactly what she felt. I would be like, mm. so wasn't sex amazing last night? She was actually, was horrible. Yeah. Like you were totally not present. Like you, all you were, you're glorifying in your own self. You weren't even present. Like, da, da, da. Or she'll be, I'd be like, yeah, what do you think of this thing I'm doing? She's like, to me, in my opinion, it's shit. But you decide what you want. If you like it, you go. like it, go for it. You know? <laughs> totally. And what I loved about that was, I can be straight up with her. Like, what are you feeling right now? I feel angry right now. What do you feel angry about? I feel angry about this. And like, she's like, okay, we'll deal with that. And also fucking trust, man. I mean, it's why I love our relationship, right? It's like, I don't have that many people in the world that I know will give me the truth. And I think that shit is probably one of the most important things we can do because not not necessarily because your truth will need to become my truth right yeah of course you can see things in a way differently than i do but what i don't need are people who pretend to like what i like and believe in what i believe just to make me feel okay about it i would say we're going to get to it at the end but one of the biggest gifts that i got that allowed me to beat i I say i beat my addiction like you killed your dragon Mm -hmm. i beat my addiction it's it's not a fucking problem anymore i'm good Right, I'm not worried to get have a problem again next week or next month or a year from now. People might think that that's crazy to say, but it is what it is. So just deal with it. But one of the ways that I beat it was I got so comfortable with myself that I could actually allow other people to give me the real honest opinion and have the wherewithal to understand that your opinion matters. It has value. And I need to incorporate that and understand what my life looks like from other angles. Mm-hmm. Because that allows me to pick a better path. It's almost like having my own Google Earth of my life. You know, when you walk through the world, you have your vantage point, your perspective. Um, like, you know, Ben, Ben Shine, right? Benjamin mm-hmm, Shine. Of course. I love Benjamin. He's my brother. He, he's amazing. And so, like, he does those rotating sculptures. And I show, I, I asked for his permission. First of all, that's important to do with people. I asked for permission and I use a video of his as a video on perspective. And, you, you know, you look at one of his sculptures from one angle. It looks like shit. It looks like nothing. It looks like a pile of mesh. And then you turn it, and next thing you know, it's like the most gorgeous 3D, beautiful faces staring at you from nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, this is your life. The problem is you only have your vantage point, your angle, your perspective. And so you're walking through the world, and you're saying to yourself, well, I'm kind of in a shitty part of the country. I don't really know where I'm heading. It's muddy here, and the houses look all decrepit, etc. But you don't have the 
bird's eye view because you can't really have the bird's eye view yourself. Maybe, I mean, you have an ability to kind of pull up, but most of us, you know, I'm walking down the street and I see what's in front of me. I don't know that if I just take this alleyway to the right, there's the most gorgeous fruit orchard over there that has everything I could ever need for the rest of my life and all the people I want to hang out with, but I'm stuck in this one place. Having other people in my life that I trust, that I can listen to, that I can relax and not need, don't have secondary motives or anything like that allows me to see their perspective. And then by putting everybody's maps together, I can go, oh, I'm looking at my life this way, but if I just shift one little angle in my perspective, I can be on this totally different street where everything is gorgeous and beautiful and I get to live the life I want. And I love being that person for people. And so I want to gather as many people like that as I get to have in my own life because I get like 50 more, 60 more years on this planet and I want them to be as enlightened and powerful and purposeful and joyful as you worked on me last time that we were together, right? Um, as possible. And I don't think I can do that completely on my own. Right. And let's not put a number on your life because you don't really know exactly what that number really is. I, 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 I try to like remove those types of barriers or walls around us. Yeah. But I want to go to something that you, I want to add something that you said, which I think is everything you said, by the way, is so important for our evolution as a species on the planet. But what we must always take into discernment and this is something, a word that I love very much because it's really helped me progress my life in so many ways. Discernment, the ability to understand what energy is actually being directed at me, the ability to discern something from using the basis of unconditional love. So mm. if someone is saying something to you, it's important to discern, is this person loving you unconditionally? Are they telling you things because they're just a person who just likes to go around and tell people things that they think they need to change because then they're coming from a place still that is not coming from this place of unconditional love? Are they loving me into my highest truth? Mm. So discernment for me. So when someone comes to me, the first thing I look for is tonation. If they're speaking from their heart, are they speaking from their, their lower ego? Are they speaking from a place of, I'm so smart, I know everything, yeah. right? And so really being able to identify that discernment and go, oh, they're coming from love. I'm ready to receive. Yeah. Right. Because I'm not going to receive any Tom, Dick, and Harry, Juice, Juice, you know, Sue, Joe, Bob, you know, Sanchuan, whoever the heck is talking to me, if they're not coming, mm. come in correct. Yeah. Which is come in correct. Come with love. Come with love. Or, you know what? I'll see you later. I didn't even know that though for 25 years. Um, you know, when I got arrested, so I come from a really academic family. My dad was a physician and wrote books and, you know, got published and worked in these medical schools and people would read them. And he was a good athlete. Like performance and doing was what I understood and knew as winning or as victory, right? Um, and not from the competition standpoint, but rather your job is to get as smart as you can and know as much as you can and then go and put that into the world. You know, it's ingrained in me, so it still sits there. But the idea that there's even a role for heart, a role for soul, a role for just being, I don't even know how to say it. Like, I don't even know the words for it. Um, just being your truest self from a place that is not heady, a place that is not cerebral. I don't know that I learned that until, oh, man, like, I, I would be scared to say this, but maybe till I met Sophie. And then a while into our relationship, like, Intimacy, and that's what I hear in what you say is intimacy, right? Like for me to come that way, I need to lower my guard. I need to see you. And that's what I love about our relationship, by the way, is who you are and what you do, the world I came from, like where I grew up, we don't even see you. 
Like you don't exist in that world. Now you're strong enough and you're forceful enough and you have such a an aura and a presence around you that you probably could have broken through that even. But I don't look in that place, right? The blinders that I was talking about before, it would be like here. And you'd be right there maybe. And maybe you could give me insight and enlightenment, but I wouldn't even see you. Yep. You wouldn't exist. And if I did see you, I would write you off. I'd say, yeah, that's, your, that's bullshit. And the thing you're talking about right now is the ability to intimately connect. Because I don't need to be a shaman. I don't need to have the powers that you have and see the world through your eyes. I just need to trust that our interactions come from that real intimacy building, heart-centered truth place. Yeah. And as long as I can believe that, we get to have our conversations and I get to learn from you and I get to absorb and I get to walk away. And now it's not like my life has become your perspective, but I get to incorporate some of the things that you bring into it. And and vice versa. And I don't even think I knew that that was a thing until like 10, 12 years ago. And so to me, that's probably been one of the biggest gifts of the second phase of my life. Even understanding that that's something I need to look into. Because when you don't, when you don't know that that's an option, you'll never expand in that direction unless by some luck, like I got lucky with Sophie, um, it gets introduced. And there's only so much you can, only so far you can go from the head, right? The head can explain a lot in a really logical, superficial sort of way. But if you're not able to connect to it, if you're not able to really feel the impact of what your knowledge is putting out into the world, I don't think it ends up mattering quite as much for your well-being, for your joy, for your contentment at, at being alive, right? I don't, when I work with clients, the joy I get is not from the knowledge I bring to them. It's from the connection I make with them and the changes that happen in their life because finally somebody in their life has allowed them to connect that way. Yeah, I feel the same exact way, 100%. So, you know, and by the way, I've been getting a lot of downloads as we've been talking mm. and stuff. And I really feel, but we can talk about this another time, that we should all sit down with our teams and we should figure out how to create some type of retreat that focuses on people who have these types of things going on mm. and build something really deep and profound I based on the understanding of what we experience as this feeling of like, by being in this world, I feel accepted. I feel loved. Because if you think about it, what is the number one thing that people want more than anything in the world? Why they go out and buy clothes? Why they buy cars? Why they buy houses? Why they have to have the Rolex watch? How come they have to be, you know, constantly on their Instagram? People want to be seen. They want to be loved. They want to be acknowledged. Yeah. And accepted. Accepted. Oh. So much. And isn't it the crazy? So first of all, I don't know when this will come out, but when you help me on the 21-day challenge next month in April, people will get to see the first part of you and I coming together and, and bringing the sort of knowledge to actually help people change their lives. So that'll be the first one. We're also planning an event in October, September, October. So that's right around your book. You're going to be pretty busy at that time, but maybe that could be an opportunity to bring your knowledge to people who struggle with the kind of things that I help people with. But... um you know, what I wanted to say was having this, seeing, seeing this connection by itself can be really powerful for people because a lot of people didn't even know that that's something they should be looking for. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate reality is, I wrote in my book about it, is people think they're going to find their solution in an either or. And so some people go to really spiritual places and other people go to really scientific places where they get medications. And some people go to the psychology um, arena where people talk to them about their childhood 
but you're so right about this need for acceptance. And what I found, unfortunately, is that in almost all, all those helping modalities, and I know you talked about that on our podcast in kind of going to traditional treatment, there's such a level of judgment about who you are from the first moment you walk in. It's like, oh, you're a damaged soul. Let us help you. Yeah. I don't want to fucking treat people that way. Mm-mm. I want to be more like, I mean, that's why my program is called the Ignited Hero Program. Mm, praise. Because, you know, you come in and my, my first thing to you is, oh my God, you made it. You made it this far. Your ability to process, your ability to, com- uh, to compose yourself, your ability to work through struggle has gotten you to this place. Mm, let's speak. Yes. You, you know, and, and my job is not to fix you because you're not broken. Mm. My job is to help you recognize your power. Not to, I mean, I hate, again, people hate me for this, but I'm going to say it out loud. Like, I hate that the first step is powerlessness in AA. Like, oh, I can't stand it. Like, I need to empower you not disempower you. I think it's sad that like the first thing we try to make people realize is that they're worthless and powerless before we build them up. That's like people come to me really resourceful um, and some of them are executives and some of them are nearly homeless, but it doesn't matter. Along, along that entire continuum, my job is to make them see that all this bullshit everybody's been saying to them for years or at least that they have interpreted that way, that they are worthless, unmotivated, lazy, you know, dumb, fat, whatever the thing is that they have in their head. I call it the Humpty Dumpty effect. The hump, I love it. Just, <laughs> I want to go into that in a second. <laughs> My job is to, is to just help them like turn their eyes back and go, oh, I was totally fine before all that indoctrination. I was totally fine before all the pain got put into me. The job is just to take the pain out. Yes. The Humpty Dumpty effect, you mean like putting people together, like the eggs? Well, it's literally like they push you off the wall, mm. crack you, and then like you can't put yourself back together, so we're going to put you back together. Yeah. But then that makes you codependent upon the fact that everyone had to come and put your ass back together. Yeah, That level of codependency makes you not see your power as this superhero, this leader, this, you know, this lit warrior who's yeah. able to like to lift. You know, it's like the it's like the it's the it's the uh, it's like the story of Sansom and Delilah. It's that mm. being able to lift and pull those chains off and be able to recognize that the power was inside of you all the time. Yeah. Right. And it's not just because it's in your hair, like in the story of Sansom and Delilah, right? I like to use a lot of things. I'm very much it. in the field of like whimsical storytelling and then like of course like all the ancient stories. So I love it. That Humpty Dumpty bullshit, right, is how people have created these 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 very systematic matrix-driven um, recovery programs. Yeah. And all it does is it makes people build shame, guilt, shame, guilt, shame, guilt. I'm using shame and guilt to keep myself from drinking. I'm using shame and guilt to keep myself from doing drugs. Which is the same thing your parents did to you probably earlier on, your teachers did to you earlier on, your friends did to you. They're like, oh, you're not wearing the right clothes. We're not going to hang out with you. And your answer when you were five and six and eight was, I got to go get the right clothes. When the real answer was to go, wait, you're not going to hang out with me because I'm not wearing the right fucking shirt? That's your problem. Right. I'm going to go be me. But when you're six, seven, eight, it's hard to have that ability to, to stand up to it. And so they, they beat you down. They gradually just get you to say, well, whatever we like, whatever we're into, that needs to be your thing. So yesterday it was Benetton and today it's fucking Polo. You better, you better switch all your Benetton for polo or you're back on the outs. And we train ourselves. We get trained to always be looking out for what other people want us to be. And 
it's so amazing with my clients over. And again, some of them are really fucking successful. Like I work with, I mean, I know you do the same, but like I work with people who are star athletes, you know, they've won championships and and athleticism. And so they're amazingly good at this one thing, but their entire life, it's almost like they were told you're only good at this. If you don't do this, if you don't win at this thing, you're going to be a complete loser and you're going to be worth Mm -hmm. nothing. So they put everything they have into this. And when it comes time to retire or when they start thinking, I don't really want to be doing this anymore, they have no identity. They have no personality. They don't know what who they are. And so the most important piece of the puzzle there is just to hold their hand and go, you're good. Mm. right? You're good. You're not good because you play basketball. You're not good because you play football or hockey. You're not good because you can sing and you're not good because you can DJ. You're just good. Period. And if I can make you see that, then you get to walk out of DJing or or being an athlete or whatever your thing is, being a CEO of a company, and understand that that's not what defined you as a human, even if you did really, really well in that game. Because the people who don't do well are the people we've gotten very used to looking down at. You know, Whether they end up homeless or they just end up not performing up to our standards, and I put that in air quotes, we look down at them, so we kind of just dismiss them. But I think the same equation works for both sides, right? Is people just need to get to the point, like, I don't know if Humpty Dumpty could have put himself together, but my question would even be like, why, why the fuck did he let him, himself be pushed off the ledge? <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's the thing that's. Who's to say Humpty Dumpty couldn't put himself back together? He could have yeah. levitated his own body. Damn. You know, maybe he's got this, you know, whole new power that we don't know that exists in that world that Love we just it. didn't see. But, you know, it's interesting what you said because there's, you know, first of all, I just want to let you know I'm having mental, emotional orgasms by being here with you. I always mm. let the tribe know orgasms don't just exist in the physical body, they exist in the spirit, in the mind, in the emotions, and I'm having them with you mm. because you're just something so delicious to my soul. It's really good. Getting into that that aspect that we're talking about when it comes to people and it's coming to like relating to people and feeling accepted. You know, my whole thing is like the real, the, the true understanding is that we have been taught by society, by the system, by the matrix, that the only antiquation of our value is by the value of what someone else sees and what we create to be getting that accolade from that other person. So we begin to create and the idea that I'm nobody unless I'm creating something that brings value in the eyes of another person. Mm. And once they actually telegraph that value to me and gives me that accolade, then I see I have purpose and I exist and I matter and there's reason. And what that has done is that's created a lot of, of malfunction in thinking for humanity because now you have people operating from things that they're buying and consumerism, the things that they're living their life, the way that they interact with each other, they're not living in a space of interacting with themselves first. They interact with the world first and then wait for the world to tell them how they should interact with themselves. Mm. And that creates such a very dismal energy in the human body that leads to all types of problems. Inflammation, acidic um, buildup, stress factors go way up. And when those stress levels go up, you're talking high levels of cortisone. You're talking a complete breakdown of your sympathetic nervous system. You're talking your, 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 your aggression um, meter, meaning in shamanism, we say that you're, how much aggression are you dealing with from environmental pollutions, food pollutions, conversations with friends, all of these things lead to a lot of these debilitating illnesses yeah. and so forth. So, oh my God, yeah. I mean, stress, look, stress is one of the 
probably the primary cause of suffering in this world. Um, we're always looking for genetics. We're always looking for like the toxin in the in the environment. We're always looking for the developmental thing that happened to you when you were young. Stress is probably the number one factor that is a thread among all of them. Even your genetics. You know, I'm um, I'm finishing up the biology of belief by Bruce Lipton. I think I told you about mm-hmm. it. We're going to end up having him on my podcast soon. But like this concept of epigenetics, which has been around now for about 10, 12, 13 years, tells us that even the shitty genes you have can get turned on and off by stress. So when when your body, even its, even its dysfunction, based on your blueprint, can get greatly reduced if you live a life that is low in stress. The problem is we've created this society around ourselves, like we talked about before, the stress of fitting in, the stress of having the right things. Um, Every, I mean, so much of what we do is stress-inducing, and we haven't built a lot of systems for stress reduction and that's stress relief. Was, that's what I. That's where I was heading. There's like none of it. There's I mean, nothing. It's ridiculous. Other than yoga, which people are finally getting into, there's but nothing. Even that's causing stress. I, that's true. Okay, because if you're not even, wearing fucking Lululemon, two hundred dollar fucking. Oh my pants. god! I gotta shake my rattle. Hold on. <laughs> Okay, that was just, I just, I had to go there because literally, exactly, they've taken the health and wellness model and have the nerve to call it health and wellness when the whole health and care wellness model is governed to you becoming a perfectionist on some idea of what you're eating, what you're doing, your yoga. Literally, I wrote an article about it in Huffington Post. I said, Mm. just because you practice yoga doesn't mean you're not an asshole. I love it. You know, it's the complete consensus of that you are literally saying you want to remove stress, you want to reduce it, you want to, you know, lower your, your, the way that your body is processing, you know, these toxins, these energies, these inflammations and everything. But the fact that you're so intense about it you're <laughs> right you know where i'm going totally right that you're actually creating more of it yep it's like uh it's i love first of all i love it and you know we live in la which is like the mecca for that and you look i mean if you read the stories about like the bikrams and the, all that, that world it's insane the aloe yoga is like you look around you go wait how is this yoga this is not what yoga is yoga is not about the 700 dollar outfit you know with the 500 dollar mat in the $300 a month fucking studio. Like that's not what it's about. Uh, dead. And, and, and on top of that, you know, so I obviously mindfulness is a really big important part of what I help people with around addiction. And people tell us this all the time, right? They, they say, well, I tried meditation, but it freaks me out. I, I just get really anxious. And I go, welcome to the club. By the way, that happens to almost everybody. But here's the issue is the messaging you've been told is wrong. Like you have been thinking that you meditate so that you can get to this place of like this Buddhist monk where your mind is totally quiet. I said, how about just close your eyes and even figure out what is happening inside? You've been running away from your own thoughts for so many years. Let's just, let's just make a list. Forget having no thoughts. Let's just know what the thoughts are. Mm. So many people, I mean, you're right, even when they go to yoga, the yoga techniques, people, first of all, people go to yoga to pick up other people. Which means the entire time they're looking at ass. <laughs> like the entire time, right? They're like, they're in half moon and they're going, that's a nice ass and tits. I think I'd like to talk to her later. Not yoga, by the way. That Just because you're in the pose does not mean yoga. Like, Take yourself in, right? What can you do? I Again, I tell people, I love the analogy of the dragon because I use something really similar with my clients, which is, you know, you've been running away from the, mon- the monster. The monster is those thoughts in your head. The monster is what you don't like about yourself and what you've been told about, all that stuff, the pain you've accumulated. It's been chasing after you. And you've been running away from it thinking, if I can just figure out how to run fast enough or turn the right corner or like 
drop a chair behind me or, or use the right drug, whatever the thing is, I'll escape the monster. But all you really have to do is you have to stop, you have to turn around, and you have to go, let's do this. Let's fucking do this, right? It might take me six months to beat you. It might take me a year. It might take me five years. But at the end, I'm not running from a fucking monster anymore. Mm -hmm. And all these techniques, I mean, that's what I love about, you know, when you talk about people's language, like we talked about the other day, and you help people find their own power. To me, that power is so that they can finally reinforce themselves, build their own armor, get their own weapons so they can turn around and just slay their own dragon. Whatever it is, they might not be alcohol, it might not be drugs. Uh, body issues, you know, they feel inadequate around their significant other, or they feel like bad parents, whatever the thing is, whatever the beast is for them, what you do helps people so much in empowering themselves and making themselves feel like they're strong enough. Right? Mm -hmm. That's, I feel I see that in the work you do with people so much, even the way you connect your tribe when you do, when we do our Instagram lives or when you do yours and you make them feel part of the equation. You lift them up, right? You help them um, feel stronger than they did half a second earlier. And I think it's on us. Those of us who have a platform, those of us who have a soapbox, a, a, whether that's an Instagram account or your speaker, whatever it is, I feel like part of our job is to help everybody who's paying attention to us lift up a little bit on their own. To me, gone are the days those were I've got to say there were shitty days where the person at the top would make everybody feel like, well, I'm a genius. Yeah, I hate that. So I'm going to teach you how to live your life, right? Oh, yeah. Because what it actually did is it kept repressing those people because the only time they would feel okay was what they were when they were absorbing information from you. If you were gone, they were like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't. I don't, I don't know if I, I, I can do this. Well, let me, let me tune into Durek's thing again so I can just get some energy. We've got to build everybody up because... I learn from people every day. Me too. If everybody can just rise up and be their best self, then I don't think these struggles would even happen anymore because you would have support around you all the time to go, hey, I see you're not feeling your best. What can I do? How can I help you? But we don't live in that world right now. We live in a world where we each feel like we have to solve all, all our own problems. We have to pretend like we're okay to everybody all the time. We have to put the mask on and never take it off. So it's isolating and it feels alone uh, and it feels power, powerless and hopeless because we feel like we're going to be stuck in this place forever. And so reaching out and holding other people's hands saying, you're okay, right? I'll show you that you're okay. You're fine. To me is the ultimate gift. Yeah. Like one of the things I cannot stand more than anything is like when people say like, you need to love yourself. You need like, you need to love yourself. You don't love yourself. I'm like, come on. You know, the person walked outside today. There's parts of them that love themselves. We want to enhance it. And, you know, this, the thing is, you know, and I have to say this too, is this like we're going back into the whole health and wellness world, right? Because it's like a big thing right now. It's become this global thing, but it's starting to become this street cachet, like this social cachet that you get, yeah. social cred. You go to yoga, you got the best mat, you got the Lululemons, <laughs> you're rocking it. You went to Wonderlust. I saw you there. You did ayahuasca. You're in that crew. Oh, right. You know, like, oh, wait a second. What? What? You, you, you drink what? Oh, you drink that? Oh, I saw that. Oh, yeah, you're one of us, you know? Right. It's like being back in junior high in high school, <laughs> totally. right? And still operating in this toxic environment that the system of the matrix created in the beginning. Mm. It's like the matrix is like, oh, they want to go into health and wellness? Let's make them crazy in that. Let's use the very thing they're using to 
to you know to to take out the, totally. the stress and lower those levels of cortisol and lower the inflammation in their body and lower these things so that they could decompress no we're not going to decompress them we're actually going to make them feel even more stressed out because they're not in those social groups and doing what everyone else is doing i call it bobblehead mentality Bobbleheads, you know, you think that thing in the car that sits there and it just bobbles its head, it bobs its head, it bobs its head, it bobs its head. That's bobblehead mentality. It just keeps saying, yes, you're following the herd. Follow the herd, follow the herd. I think the sexiness is in the rebel. The sexiness is I don't have to go to every wanderlust. I don't have to go to every yoga. I don't have to drink every green smoothie and do all of these downward dogs and upward dogs when you're really just looking at the girl's ass in front of you, yeah. right? Or checking out the guy because it's now it's the new pickup joint, right? Yeah. Right? The health and wellness world is all about sexy. Back to that same story of like, I'm not good enough to get the girl I want unless I'm a yoga instructor. So I'm going to go do the training uh, and go buy all the right clothes because that's when I'll get the right girls. And what you miss is you're still not fucking being yourself, man. Just own your shit. Just own your shit. Like, how amazing is it when you meet somebody and you can just tell they're imperfect. They know they're imperfect. They, they almost roll up the carpet like that. They're like, yo, here's my shit. I know, I know where it is, just so we're aware. It's right there, but I'd love to connect. Like to me, that is the most amazing way to be with people. When when somebody looks too perfect, I'm always looking behind, like, what? Where's the fucking baggage? Right? Like, yeah. what? What's really good? Because nobody lives that life. And I tell my people that all the time, right? Like, if if you're following somebody and it seems like everything is great, that's a front. Period. Like, for instance, I mean, I'll talk about this. I don't. I don't know. I, I'll bring it up. Look, um, this is called I don't give a shit. Yeah. Okay. So, like, um, I like Tony Robbins. I like his stuff. I've only seen him speak at one event. But I remember I was talking to one of my clients because she really likes him and, um, and has wanted to go to some of his stuff. And I said, just so we're clear, I want you to know, Tony has his shit. I don't know what it is because I'm not in his inner circle, so he would never reveal it to me because that's kind of the, the personality he puts out. But I just need you to understand the the pedestal you're trying to put somebody on, A, the pedestal doesn't exist. B, there's nobody you can put up on that pedestal. It just doesn't exist. Not even the Dalai Lama. No, nobody. 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 So just like take a deep breath, learn from their examples, learn what they do and and model what you want to model, but you have to put it to your own use. Like you're not going to be a Dalai Lama. I don't give a fuck what you do. Yeah. You're not going to be the Mother Teresa. Like the reason you hold them up is because they found their own channel. Like... If you look at anybody that you look up to, anybody, you, by the way, right? Like anybody who looks up to you, look at the way, the route you took to shamanism and the, and the way you do it now. Guaranteed, by the way, there are shamans who talk shit about you, right? Man, right? Nonstop. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So there are shamans who talk shit about you. I call it the shaman hate club. Sure. And then there are like science people, academics like me who say that you're just all bullshit. So you get it from both sides. And to me, it's like if you get it from both sides, you're probably onto something. Because what happened is you're not willing to appease any camp Mm-mm. to just make them happy. And now I would actually, maybe I can issue a challenge to people listening right now, right? If there's a camp within which you really like being and you you feel like you're part of that crowd, that's great. Now drop the notion that you're going to be exactly like somebody else in it. Stop the model like... Don't try to be the next, I don't know, Baron Baptiste or whatever. If you're in the yoga world, don't be him. Be you mm. using whatever lessons you have in that, in that world. Because, um, <laughs> thank you. 
<laughs> I shake the rattle because the truth is coming. Henry, and the bombs are being dropped, brother. Henry Ford has this, has this quote that I love, which is, uh, if I would have asked the people what they wanted, they would have said they want a faster horse. And you know what? We live in a world now where nobody rides horses. You drive cars. But somebody had to have the wherewithal to say, nobody sees as far as that. When Henry Ford created the first Model T, like the the first car produced at massive scale so people could buy, people were like, nobody's ever going to drive a car. It's insane. It's a big, ugly, like metal machine. It's dangerous. The fear was that people were going to die in it all the time. Nobody's going to do this. You're crazy for even thinking that it's a thing. He's now known as essentially the originator, the, the first person to um, create the modern automobile world. And if, if we take that on and you, don't, and you forget the notion that everybody gets stuck in, which is Henry Ford invented the modern car, you can go back to the beginning where it mattered. You can go back to the beginning where Henry Ford had to do something nobody else had done before. And the only reason we look up to him is because he did something nobody else had done before. And that's one example, but I, I challenge anybody right now listening to pick an idol that you want to look up to and that you have been looking up to and trace back their story. I guarantee the way they got to it is by bucking the, the system and going against the stream in something that they were doing before. Absolutely. You know, and, and so the herd mentality that you talked about that whole piece of it, the herd mentality, you will end up being unsatisfied in the middle of everything, confused, running where everybody else is running like a herd if you're not up front. And so sometimes, yes, sometimes that means you have to leave the herd and run in a different direction. And then we get back to what we were talking about earlier, which is have people you trust, have people who have your best interest at heart and not some secondary motive where they want to use you for something that you can turn to and say, hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm really excited about it. Is this too crazy? And have them go, look, I don't get it, but you seem really enlightened by it. So go for it. And I'll, I'll still be here with you, letting you know if you're kind of getting off the deep end. And I think that to me is, has proven to be a way to still have, because I still want to have some borders around the world that I get to be in. I'm not quite at the level where I'm willing to 100% jump off a cliff. And some people are, by the way, and that is even more powerful. Right. But... um. But by having two, three, four, five people in my life that I trust to that level, I get to experiment all the time with what I want to do. And I get to really find my own path and my own route in life. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think that, I think that there is a, a new model that is, that is being formulated by people like you and I that is like, drop the bullshit. Yeah. Like, drop the bullshit. Like, stop with the very, like, everything on Instagram has to be perfect. You know, because you're right. Because when those people are doing those things, I kind of look at them and go like, wow, you're trying to create this idea of this false image, but you're not really getting in with the people. It's like getting with the people. Like, like be okay with the humility. Be okay with the fact that you eat, sleep, shit, and fart. And sometimes you might throw up and look, and you might look haggard and you might look all crazy and whatnot, but that's reality. That's what's real. And I think there's a point where we have to get rid of all of that nonsense because I feel like the matrix is weaving itself into the health and wellness world, into the spiritual thing, and trying to create this kind of like false persona 
um, which is this very illusionary based way of looking at yourself in life that is actually taking you further away from your level of evolution and enlightenment and bringing you more towards narcissism and the narcissistic ways in which you can operate that mentality into the social group that you're involved in. Yep. So then you start becoming, uh, oh, such and such is, is buying those yoga and those Lululemons and so on and such and such is, is going to Tony Robbins. I need to go to Tony Robbins. Or, or the one that yep. I wrote about in my book recently, which is, you know, just because everyone's doing ayahuasca, it's not a street cred and social cachet, but not everyone has to do ayahuasca. Nope. And you don't have to do plant medicine at all, and you're still okay. 100%. 100%. And, like, by the way, and if, if you're feeling called to it, then okay, and find the right people to do it with, et cetera, and, you know... Don't jump on the bandwagon just because it's a fucking bandwagon. Because the thing is, you have no idea where the fuck it's going. And, and you know, you spoke to the yoga thing, and this is happening on all fronts. It, it's happening to weed right now. You know, it's going to end up happening to ayahuasca. Weed. Sex and weed. Have you, seen these, have you seen the billboards? No. Have you seen the advertisements? Oh, the, like the new, like the Mad Men or Med Men so or whatever. all of the weed companies are being taken away from the mom and pops. So all the corporations are buying up all the land, right? Growing everything yep. and using sex to sell marijuana. Yeah, I saw one of the ones where like just, it's literally just hot girls with like a marijuana leaf on them. Yeah. It feels like it's an ad in the old high times. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So here's the funny thing about it, right? What people have a hard time understanding and especially probably because, look, I have nothing against cannabis. I got nothing against sex. I got nothing against any of these individuals or in ayahuasca, by the way. But here to me is a tip for those of you who are looking to really enlighten, not, and, and again, this is important. Some of you are just looking to pick up ass. And like, if that's, if you're honest about that, then just be true to yourself and don't pretend you're going to yoga to like connect to your inner self. But those of you who are looking for enlightenment, just so you know, the companies that you're buying the clothes from, et cetera, they've got the fucking formula figured out. Like if 12 of your favorite um, influencers are wearing their yoga clothes, they're targeting you in that way for the clothes. Now, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with wearing Lululemon and there's nothing per se wrong with aloe, although I got my own issues with them. Um, <laughs> I, will, I will leave it at that. It's not that. If you are buying their clothes just because you really like them and you'd like to be wearing them for your next yoga class, all good. But if you're buying them because Lululemon is no longer the popular thing and your crew, it's aloe yoga or whatever the fuck the other one is, check yourself. I would actually argue that every time you start making a decision based on that, you know, this car is no longer the right car for me to drive. I got to drive this other car because everybody's driving like a Tesla in fucking LA, right? Like all my friends have switched their Porsches, their Ferraris, et cetera, for Tesla. Now everybody's using it like the uh, environment as their solution for it. Well, you know, it's, it's a much more economical car that is really, it's much more responsible. But that's not why. The reason they're doing it is because everybody's like Tesla is now the Lamborghini of status. So just, I think we should all start having this conversation with ourselves in a real way Yeah. inside. Like, why do I want this, these pants or why do I want that shirt? Or if I want it, cause I like it and it feels good. Fucking wear whatever Louis V, Gucci, Prada, Zara, Gap, whatever you want. Just, just know that when you're, you, you call it the matrix, know that when you start making decisions because of your perception of what other people will think of you, if you make that decision, you have left reality. Yeah. You're not in reality anymore. Because first of all, you have no fucking idea what other people are going to think of you if you drive that car, wear that shoe, you know, have that shirt. You just don't know. 
people might st- the same people you're trying to oppress might still hate the shit out of you. You'll just be in a better car. So stop making these decisions for other people because they drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. And when you come from a place of insecurity and you're making these decisions to make other people like you better, you derail your own life. And eventually you will find your way to me or somebody like me going, I don't know why I'm drinking every night from 6 p.m. to 10. Everything else is going great. I'm working out. I'm going to yoga. I'm doing all this stuff. And I'll go, and I start asking what's going on. You go, well, yeah, I've been alone for 20 years. And I go, what the fuck? Wait, is that a thing? Is that, do you want to be alone? No, I don't want to be alone. I want a partner. Well, why? And then all this stuff comes out. I don't feel like I'm good enough. Nobody really loves me. I'm trying to get to the status. I'm trying to get to be the kind of person that the person I want to be with will love. And I go, that's where you, that's where the shit's fucked up for you. Forget the drinking. It's not even about the drinking. We got to figure out where that story came into your head. And if you can sit with me for long enough and you are willing to get uncomfortable enough, we'll figure out the answer. And when you get to the other side, like you slayed your dragon, it's over. Yeah. I call it, you know, don't let, don't, I say wear your clothes, but don't let your clothes wear you. Yeah. You know, like if you got to prance around in your Louis Vuittons and you got to wear your Rolex watch and it's not because you buy it because you actually like the way it looks, but you buy it because you think it's giving you status whenever, then you're just basically walking around. You might as well wear a shirt that says, I'm insecure, love me. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, the, I mean, that's what it comes down to. All so the time. So, okay, going from that, you went in and you hit rock bottom. You got arrested. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, so when I got first... This was my third arrest because I got arrested for shoplifting, right? That's how I started selling weed. Then I got arrested once coming back from the body shop, which is a strip club on Sunset after leaving a club. And I picked up a friend who was girlfriend, friend, whatever she was at the time, stripper. And we were driving back to my studio, got arrested in Beverly Hills and spent a couple of nights there. But the last arrest was that that is part of this. I was in my um, on my motorcycle riding back from delivering drugs, got hit by a car, on the ground, uh, cops found, I don't remember if it was a quarter pound or a half a pound of Coke on in my jacket, in the lining of my jacket. And so when I went to the hospital, I broke my leg, I broke my tibia and my fibula, and I'm in the hospital waiting for surgery, and I'm handcuffed to the bed. And they literally, they put this like sign on me that I'm under arrest, even though I literally couldn't walk or move. And for the next three months, they tried to get me to snitch on the dealers that I used to get from. I'm for nothing if not accountability and take responsibility for your own shit. So I was like, I'm not telling you anything. You can do whatever you want to me. I gave him the wrong phone number. because Nobody likes a snitch. A, nobody likes a snitch. B, <laughs> I, I picked the fucking career. Like, right. I'm not going to put it on my friends. Who are, I felt like they were my friends. I'm not going to put them in, in jeopardy because I was a fucking idiot. Like That's just not their fault. So three months, the cops were trying to get me to snitch. I wouldn't. And eventually the SWAT team came to arrest me at home. Still in a wheelchair. Uh, actually, I think I was on crutches already by that point. But they came to my apartment 8 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday, arrested me, took me to jail. And at that point, it was a million-dollar bail because you know you see me as I am now, but I had the gun. I had a meth pipe next to my bed. I had like about $200,000 worth of drugs in the apartment. Um, so I was a high risk, right? Like the gun and all that kind of stuff. 13 felony counts when it started out. So a million-dollar, $750,000 bail. And I was in, because I was, I'd broken my leg, they put me in the infirmary part of the jail, right by the USC Medical Center. It is not a pretty part of the jail. Not that a lot of them are great, but this was a dirty, dirty part of the jail. I mean, like the toilet was flooding. Everybody had broken limbs or missing limbs. Like shit had gone wrong in their arrest. 
I was coming off of meth. And I mean, you know how it is when you come off of meth. Yep. First 24 hours, you're kind of okay. And then you're out. Like, I couldn't keep my fucking eyes open. So I literally had a bottom bunk and I just slept. When food would come, somebody would hit me. And then they would like, they would put the tray in front of me. I would eat and then I would pass back out for five days. So actually, the first five days were the easiest because I could not keep my eyes open. Um, Talked to my parents on the phone. $750,000 bill would have meant they needed to post up almost a hundred grand just to get me on. I said, touch nothing, do nothing. I'm going to stay here for a week. I'm going to go see a judge and my bail will hopefully go down. You're not paying $100,000 to get me out of jail. Went in front of a judge, got lowered to 50000 My parents posted five grand for me and I got out. And then for a year and a bit, my court case kept going. And so I went to rehab at the recommendation of my lawyer. I got kicked out of my first rehab for using. Within a month, I was back on meth. Um, I would go to work as they would say, but uh, my work was going to my studio and just using, like just sitting around playing music and just using meth. They found out after about a month and a half, two months. By the way, when I got arrested, the biggest relief was my parents and my family finally knowing what the fuck was really up with me. And it really sucked to start lying to them again. When I got kicked out of rehab, I had that awareness and I told my dad the truth that I just got kicked out for using. He hated me for it and yelled at me for it, but I felt freed by not having to lie to him anymore. Kept going to rehab for another eight months. And then I got, there was the day I had to turn myself in to jail. And I know you've spent time. Yeah. Look, so this was the fourth time now that I was going back into jail. But this time was long. Like I got a year. I was sentenced to a year. My mom thought it was a disservice to humanity. I was like, thank fucking God I only got a year. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I could have gotten 15 and nobody would have batted an eyelash. So on the day I had to go to jail, it's like, you know, it's, this is like my third or fourth time in, so it's not like I didn't know what it was like, but it's hard to describe to people what it's like when you have to go somewhere and they tell you ahead of time, like, wear your shittiest clothes and, you know, wear no shoelaces in your shoes because they don't allow those in. Um, and then you do that thing where you have to stand in line and when you first go in, drop all your clothes, bend over, and just people are just checking you with a flashlight behind in your ass. And then they put you all in a shower together. And for guys... Yeah, I hate that shower. Oof. For guys, 40, 50 guys naked in a little shower, not much bigger than the room we're in right now, where you're kind of holding the bag of your stuff and just everybody's naked, starts the dehumanizing process in a really strong way. So like you're bending over and you're naked. You have to take your clothes off in front of all these people. By the time I got to a cell, it was like, I think I want to say it was like 72, 48 to 72 hours. And in the meantime, you're sleeping on the floor under a table somewhere with like a you know, a toilet paper roll as a pillow, but you're so tired, you're so fucked up, you're so out of it, you no longer feel like a human. And by the time you get to a cell, that process is almost complete. It's kind of insane how within a few days they can just make you like, give me the food. You know, you just get the food. And then now, so I was going to be in there for a year. Um, I was on the phone to my parents every day. Uh, at first, I was in a six-man cell because I was a high security risk. Eventually, I got to a dorm and I got to be a trustee, like one of those people who would make sandwiches in jail, uh, which was nice because you got to leave your cell every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> but it's uh, you know, it's hard to describe. It's like the lights never turn off. It's fucking cold as shit because they don't want it to be warm because bacteria and mold grow. Um, the no, they freeze you. I mean, I remember, I remember freezing. I remember I had not even a pillow. I had just a sheet 
yeah. and a mattress and I was freezing and you a just cot, you, in a cot, cot it's like, like an inch like this. It's like an you inch. can feel the pain in your body and I just learned how to adapt my body my mind to that environment yeah and you know people ask me how do you do it? and I go I didn't get a fucking option it's not like somebody goes well is this okay it's just here, here for a year and so I actually ended up really spending four months in there because then after that I got into a work release program where fortunately my lawyer hired me as his driver and I literally would go out in the morning, drive him around all day, then go back to jail at night. But, uh, I mean, I, I, it's, it would be hard to count all the different things that happened in those four months actually being in that were tough. Uh, it's not like the work furlough thing was really easy, but, you know, beatings. I, I only got in two fights in the four months that I was in there. But, like, guys that I knew got the shit kicked out of them. Yeah. Like, destroyed. Some guys I knew got this close to being raped. Um, and you just had this sense about you of like, your job right now is to make it out. Now, one of the things that I know is also I met a lot of guys in there who they live their life in and out of the system. So they called it their in time and their out time. And, you know, they said, oh, I, I, you know, I was out for seven months this time. And that was like a point of pride. Like I made it out for seven months and now I'm going to be in for another six months to a year and then I'll come back out like back and forth. And it really sank in deeply to me that that can become normal. And I knew when I left jail, I, was, I made one promise to myself. I'm like, you're not ending up back in that fucking place. What do you have to do to, to stay out? And so, you know, it, the experience for me was a really cleansing experience, actually, in the end of what I can put up with. First of all, like I know now you can drop me anywhere in the world and I'll be fine. Yep. Um, which is a real amazing I gotta, thing. I got to give it up to you because we have that. For sure, in anywhere, common. like anywhere, you anywhere. Can put me I'll, in any situation. I'll, I'll make, I'll figure a way out. And I got to tell you, there's a, there's a confidence that it gives you, because my life is pretty fucking cushy right now, and it's pretty good. But I've also been through shit, and I know it could turn around like that. I'm not doing anything illegal now. There's no like reason for that to happen. But I mean, I don't want to, as you, as you've taught me, I don't want to put anything into the universe in the, in the negative sense. No, we don't want to frame it. But anything could happen tomorrow, and so. I now know that I'm good. But when I got out, I said, I'm good, but I just never want to be in that place again. And so I, um, I had to start building literally a life that I didn't even know existed. Um, I'd never seen it. I didn't, I wasn't ever, you said you were like a, you know, like a punk um, skateboarder. Yeah. I wasn't that, but I was like a goth. Like I did that too. Crazy. I love goth. Yeah. Like, you know, we talked Nine Inch Nails with my, with my jam back then. And it was like, I had to go, okay, what, do, what does my life look like now? And it was almost like a black, blank canvas and I had to start painting it all over again, um, which was actually a really enlightening experience for me. Um, I've had to test a lot of different things. There was a period for, I mean, I would say six, seven years after that that I really didn't trust myself. By the way, I was in AA for three years and being in AA for three years in a pretty hardcore um, group. Well, that's intense. I can only handle a week. Yeah, yeah. So for three years, I didn't think I had an option. Well, based on the court and all that kind of stuff. At that time, I didn't have an option. But I had to deprogram myself because they make you afraid that if you ever leave, you're going to end up in a hospital, you're going to end up dead or in an institution or addicted again. And I didn't want any, any of those things. So I had to essentially, with my parents, create an entire path that would be different. And then I built a life. I built a life for myself. I ended up not being able to get hired because um, this is probably not a surprise to a lot of people listening right now, but with nine felonies on your record, not, no job calls you back like literally at the mall folding clothes or working in the back office like I, nobody would hire me so for three to six months my parents supported me fully 
And then we were like, okay, you got to do something else. I went to school. Uh, I hated school. I really resented it. Um, part of my early story was that if you're not perfect, you're shit. And while I was really good at school, I wasn't perfect at it. And so that meant I was a failure. But now when I went back to school, I had this drive. I had this motivation to just really kill. And I ended up with a 4.0 GPA at uh, Cal State Long Beach. Became, at the time, I don't know if this is still true now, but from the psychology department at the time, I was the first graduate student from Cal State Long Beach. I got into UCLA for the PhD program. Um, and I just, I wanted to figure out what the fuck happened. You know, you had shamanism to go back on and go and understand. I had academia and I went all in. And people thought I was a little crazy because you don't go to graduate school at UCLA in psychology to study addiction. You go to study neuroscience or statistics. You go to study vision, some some of the really bigger stuff. Right. I was really, really focused. Um, and it started out trying to figure out what what went wrong, what happened in me. And one of the weirdest times, I, I, I don't think I've ever told this. I told the story in my course, but not anywhere else. Some of the studies I did were with coke, meth, and nicotine. And I will never forget the day that I had to go into the, to the lab and I was starting a meth study. And so my advisor takes a jar about four times the size of this thing, like a big fucking jar of pharmaceutical quality meth. And I think I got, I got to be honest on here. I had to prep myself the night before because I never, meth is not something you just run into on the street. So I never had to deal with meth before. And most people out there would have told me, don't do it. You can't do that study. You're a meth addict. You can't get near meth. And I was like, fuck that. Like, I'm a PhD student studying neuroscience at UCLA. Like, I got to figure out how to do this. So I I had to really talk myself up. And then the next day, I'm in there making meth solution for uh, my studies. And again, that was another proof to myself, another victory of like, oh, shit. Like, I can do this. I can literally hold a jar that was like, you know, a pound of meth in my hand and not touch it, not get near it, not, I'm not going to say I had no temptations the first couple of days, but erase that from my being. I call it kissing the dragon. Yeah. And it was gone. Like, I don't fucking crave meth. I have no need for it anymore because I handled it. Like, it was there. I didn't get scared. I didn't run away. I handled it. And, um, and so there were a lot of opportunities like that to prove to myself that I'm good it's why I'm so comfortable now saying I beat this shit. Like, I'm not. I'm not looking around the corner to see when this is going to rear its ugly head again because I slayed it. Yep, totally. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, like, with our paths, and you know, and for those of you who are listening to Ancient Wisdom Today podcast, um, you can listen to my story of yep. what happened to me and how my jail incarceration and how and my life with meth and alcohol and addiction and how I pulled myself out of it even while I was training as a shaman and how shamanism, um, how I went back into shamanism. Whereas I, as he said, I went into shamanism. He went into academia. You know, but literally, I mean, he is my brother and we have just very, you know, parallel experiences with the same and in the same circle, actually, which is really funny. Um, So crazy. but, But the interesting thing about it is, is that looking at the redemption quality, right? So the redemption quality is that people will be in the, in the bottom and they'll be going through it with the drugs and the alcohol and like, like I said, I couldn't handle AA on any level because yeah. I, I, every time someone opened their mouth and every time someone said something to me and told me, once an alcoholic, always alcoholic, I started to drink. Like I was like, I, got, I can't, I, I have to have a drink to listen to your bullshit. Yeah. I would be, I would go there drunk and lie and lie to the people and be like, no, uh-uh, I'm listening. Like I'm here. And the whole time I, I was kind <laughs> so, of liquored up right before uh, I walked in, you know? And 
What was interesting was that was my medicine. The drugs, the alcohol was my medicine. And that was the medicine I needed because I don't think I would be here today. Yes. Yes. Right? Thank you. I mean, I I say that to people all the time and I'm, I'm so glad you said that yourself because like I said before, Ignited Hero, I needed that shit to fucking get here. Because if I didn't have it, look, people kill themselves. People say bye. And the reason they say bye is they can't handle what's going on here. And you know what? I mean, because I've heard your story and go to Ignite It and listen to that story because it's fucking ridiculous. Um, Everybody I've worked with, and I know you say the same thing, like everybody I've worked with, I don't care if it's trauma, like beatings, you know, and the kind of incarceration, like at home that you've experienced. I don't care if it's that level. We've all experienced these things in life that taught us we're not, we're not good enough. And that's an internal jail. And if you needed alcohol, meth, heroin, coke, whatever, Adderall, ecstasy, Adderall, whatever, pills to get you through that, all the more, I'm glad you made it. Now let's get to the other fucking side of it. You know, yeah, I love that you the, said that. Let's get to the other fucking side. Let's get to the fucking side. Yeah. Because I think that, I think the whole idea is not to run and make like, this was this horrible thing that I did. I'm a horrible person because I'm in that. It's like, look at why you need the medicine. Yep. And then, and, and then, and then take that mm. and then embrace it. Yes. You know, like love on that shit. Yes. You know, and then from there, you can transfer yourself to this other place where we can take you, which is like now watch yourself become a leader. Yeah. And understand why that path was necessary for you to be that leader. And the thing is that you would never be able to be that leader. You, literally, Derek, would never be able to be that leader if you didn't go through all that pain. No. Right? And I mean, you know, it's the equation that I use for a lot of people and I, I use it because of my leg because that's, you know, this leg stands for a lot, right? It got, me, it got me through that accident. It got me arrested when I was in the hospital. The doctor said, well, if you train really hard, then you should be able to walk normally again. I was like, fuck that. I'm going to go train so I can do whatever I want. And then I went back and went to the gym hardcore to be able to get to run, do whatever else I want to do. And so what I tell people all the time is, you know, just like my bones, because I broke, I'm stronger, Right? When your bones break, the calcium collects around the, the fracture and it actually makes that spot in your leg stronger than all the other spots in your bone because that bone is now thicker and stronger and has more blood vessels leading to, uh, to uh, the nutrients because it had to heal. And I'm a firm believer that those of us who've broken and then healed are actually stronger than people who've never been tested. And if you can really tune into what that means, you'll start celebrating your challenges. Because if you get tested and you figure out how to solve something, you figure out how to get beyond it. And I mean everything, right? Like I've heard sex abuse when you were little, uh, beatings. Been there. Uh, you know, um, war-torn regions of the world, uh, lifelong abuse by parents, significant others or whatever, terrible accidents that left you disfigured. I mean everything. Right. When you tune into the fact that, oh shit, when I figure out how to get to the other side of that challenge, I'm so much stronger than I am right now. That's like, that's my thing. That's all I got to do is I just got to hone in, figure out where to go and figure my way out through this. Walk through the fire, you know, swim through the ocean, do, you know, climb the mountain, whatever the thing is that I got to do to get to the other side of this. For most people, I think what we've been taught is the pain is the signal to run. 
if something isn't working out, like in relationships, I use this with Sophie all the time. I know uh, hopefully one day we'll, we'll have the two of us on here. Oh, no, we are going to. I uh, talked to her about it today. Awesome. Um, <laughs> kids, kids get in the way of everything. But, and all, are also the biggest blessing that has ever existed. But, you know, when Sophie and I had our cheating scandal, everybody says, you're done. Leave him and move forward. And we said, wait, like we still love each other. If we can figure out how to get to the other side of this, we think there's something good on the other end. We didn't realize that on the other side of that was actually a much stronger relationship than our friends have had who've never been tested. And I will say to this day, the vast majority of long-standing relationships that I know, people who've made it 20, 30, 40 years in their relationships, they've been tested normally multiple times. I'm not saying it's always cheating, but they've been tested oftentimes multiple times. And the only thing that distinguishes them from the people who are divorced is they decided to stick it out and figure out what to do. Now, sometimes you're in dangerous situations or in situations where both partners said, hey, I don't want this anymore. We can move on. That's totally different. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of situation where you want to make it work, but you're scared and you run the other way. Mm-hmm. And, and my challenge in life in general is now to identify those experiences, those opportunities sooner and recognize, oh, wait, this isn't pain. This is an opportunity for growth. It's interesting you say that. And I want to, uh, to bring that point because, you know, the way I look at relationships when I'm dealing, because I have a lot of couples who come to me, you know, mm. and with even in my own relationships, I got to a place where I just won't compromise. And that's why I'm not in, in you know, um, putting that kind of energy into any kind of relationship. I feel like I have to be true to who I am. Because if I can't show up as me, yeah. then you're getting the false, you're getting the fake, fake shaman, fake Dirk, you know, yep, and that's totally. not going to work. That shit's not going to work for me. But the thing that I find is interesting in relationships is I always ask myself is what are you amplifying? If you are amplifying love when you both are together, even if you've gone through difficulty and tests and all that, but you still amplify love, yeah. then there's something there. But if you're amplifying, if you are a team of destruction, mm. meaning that because you're together, you are actually creating waves of destruction that are affecting your children, affecting your friends, affecting your environment. It's like just destructive energy patterns going out, like this yeah. discordant energy. You know, as as, as as one of my close friends said, it's time for a conscious, conscious uncoupling. Couple, yeah. yeah. It's time for you to, to, to look at each other and be like, look, yeah. what we've learned from each other is that we have power issues with each other. Mm. We're not amplifying love into the world. We're not amplifying love to our children. And so therefore, we need to bless each other's path. We need to do the right thing. Because yeah. what I can't stand the most is when people get into a breakup they don't understand that a breakup is also a time to wake up mm. and get into a space of unconditional love and respect for the fact that there was a time when you loved each other. Yeah. So why are you taking to each other to the court and trying to hide money or do things to each other and be very manipulative? Yeah. Each of you should benefit. Each of you should walk away with a win-win, feeling loved, supported, and acknowledged on your journey. Love it. I mean, if you think about it, Again, all a matter of perspective, right? Benjamin Shine, 3D image, um, flipping around. If you think about it, a breakup is a blessing. Mm-hmm. Because nobody chooses to break up because things are going really, really well. And they're like, you know, this has been amazing, but I'd like to not do it anymore. You're breaking up because something isn't working out. Now, of course, oftentimes, there's a partner who realizes that first. 
And so somebody else gets hurt in the equation because they, they didn't come to the same conclusion and they're still trying to hold on. But here's the thing. Nobody listening right now wants to be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't truly love them, who doesn't have their best interest at heart. Nobody wants that. If you get a question like, would you like to be with person A or person B? I think the only question you ask yourself internally is, how happy will I be with that person? And then do they love me the same way? Like, you know, is it reciprocal? You don't want to be stuck in a relationship with somebody who looks down at you, is not, is not, feeling the love and is not connecting with you, right? So somebody telling you, hey, I'm, uh, I'm not feeling the way I felt before. I don't know what to do. That's a, that's a blessing because now you get two options. Is this the sort of thing we can fix? And it, like you're talking about, and I love the perspective of are you putting out destruction or love? Is this something we can fix and get back to a place where we're all in the same place? And then both people have to be willing to do a lot of work or are we done? Are we just kind of good? We lived the life of this relationship. And if you can get to that perspective, then whoever discovered it first is actually coming to the other person and saying, hey, I have an offering for you. I can let you off the pain. I'm allowing both of us to move away from pain and struggle and towards the next path, uh, the next road that will make us feel better. Sophie and I have an agreement in place right now. If one of us falls out of love with the other in our radical transparency way that we do everything, we come to the other person and we talk about it. Yeah. You know, because I don't want her to be with me just because she feels like, well, we've been together for 15, 20 years, so I might as well just stick the rest of the, my life out. I want both of us to be living in truth and um, in a space that honors ourselves, our kids, and teaches our kids like, hey, this is what life is really like. Yeah. I think that there is the, the mentality that I hear a lot from women will say to me, well, when my kids grow up, I'm going to leave this dysfunctional relationship. All the time. I'm like, you're creating ancestral curse just by staying in the relationship. Don't say you love your children because you're, you, you're, you love your children. That's why you're staying in abuse. You're just simply saying to your children, abuse is okay. And I have yeah. a no tolerance thing for abuse. And then the other thing is holding people hostage in relationship. I'm going to hold you hostage. We're going to hold each other hostage and keep amplifying destruction into the world. So true. That's not, that's not, that's not, that's not necessary. I think there's a point you know, for me, what comes up for me in like, because I'm multiple things, I'm a multidimensional being. I have a female, a male, an ET, a jaguar. I got all kinds of things coming. Yeah, Old do. man. I got the, all kinds of beings coming through me that, that switch off. Like you, like you turn off a light and another one's coming on. Whoever's with me has to be okay with all of it. But the thing that you said, which is interesting, and you know what I wanted to draw from that, you said, do you love me the way I love you? And here's an interesting thing that I always say is that no one will love you the way you love them. If mm. we can get clear on that, because the perception of a person's understanding of love is based on the data, the emotional responses, and the understanding of love that they were taught from their childhood, yeah. from their time of infancy, from age five, and then all the way up to where they are. And the movies they watched, the way that they lived in their life, the friendships they had, and the way they built their community and tribe. So my, my understanding of love will always be different from your understanding of love. That's a good point. The question we have to get into is, do you accept me? And allow me to be me without your need to change me, rearrange me, or fix me to be able to create a partnership. Yeah. Can you come on this side 
of your of who you are and I come on this side of who I am and create a collective partnership. I love you, but you'll never know the, the way I love you. And if I run around trying to do all the things to prove my love to you, then I become a slave to you. Mm. And I think that's the biggest thing is that you have men and women who are trying to do all these things to say, don't you see how much I love you? I'm willing to put up with your abuse. I'm willing to put up with this. I'm willing to put up with that. That is you basically demonstrating to me that you love me more than you love you. And that's even dangerous. Yeah. No, that's so true. I've um, I talked about it before. I, I mean, I love these analogies. I talk about T, A, and H relationships. I don't know if you heard about this before, but like, you know, T is essentially one person supporting another. Right. So one person is, is completely lifting up a second person. This person can stand up on their own. They move out and this person hits the ground. Mm. An A relationship is two people are dependent on one another. They're connected with a line. So there, there's something more that the relationship adds to the support. But if either one of them moves, they both fall down. And then there's an H relationship. Two people can stand on their own. The connection between them, the line that connects the two lines, if it's severed, the two people are still standing on their own, right? The relationship is not what makes the people. Now, do you get, you said it as do you project love into the world? Is there more? Does the relationship, is there a synergistic thing that happens when you two come together where the sum is greater than the, the pieces? And if there is that, then I think what you're finding is you, you have both found yourself, first of all, that's important, right? So you're both pretty clear on yourself. And sometimes we can, I think we can get clarified in a relationship because I see myself mirrored in you as we interact. And I can say, oh, I never realized that there's this part to me. Let me get comfortable and, and get to know this, mm-hmm. this element of myself. But you know, I told Sophie can 100% stand up on her own. I, I hope so. I feel pretty strong in it. I can stand up on my own. We bring th- something together that is additional to what we bring separately into the relationship. But I never want either one of us to feel like we're dependent on the other person. Because then you start playing those games. You start doing the things in the relationship to try to, I, I love how you said it, to keep the other person hostage. Well, you can't break up with me because... First of all, I can break up with you whenever I want, but why make why test me? Why put me in a situation where I have to prove that I love you? We're here. Like that's that's the reason. How do you know I love you? Because I came home. Because I'm here. Right? Like I'm with you. Um, so not I'm, because you bought the val- the Valentine's box of of chocolate hearts. Not that. Not because you got the right car. Not because you moved to the right house. I mean, one day it'd be interesting to talk about because you know I'm sure in in the relationships that you see. I, I really, I got to say this. I don't know. I feel like sometimes people aren't quite ready to do all their own work. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I see the power up mentality. So, so what I see when people come to me in couples, this is what I'll get. I'll get the guy who makes a lot of money. Okay. And he'll use his, that he makes the money. He works so hard. You know, of course his wife has to do these things. Like, what is she doing? She's just taking care of kids all day long. Right. It's almost like a, um, Look at how much I do versus what you do instead of realizing that, that that's not a partnership, yeah. okay? That's like literally you're, you're, you're playing this very kind of like, I'm doing all of this. So because of that, I see the value of making money more in value than you being a woman who actually brought a child in, carried this baby through gestation process to birthing, to after, to taking care of the kids. That Feeding value, them from feeding your body. Feeding them from your body. That value, that understanding is just as strong as the antiquation of what's in your bank account. I got to be honest, I was in that place, man. I mean, before we had kids, I was in that place. Um, My dad was never around when I was growing up. My mom raised me and my sister. My dad was around like one day a week because he worked all the time. And 
that kind of continued till way later in life. And we had babysitters, we had nannies, that kind of thing. But my mom was the one raising me. And I definitely fell into the mentality of like, well, what's, yeah, but you're only working part time. I would say things like that to Sophie. And then you better test your shit. Like Sophie, a few times would go out of town because Sophie has her own career. She makes more money than I do right now, actually. So it's like, she would go away for three to four days and she would help and set up babysitters with me and stuff. But like, I mean, you want to see what raising kids is like. <laughs> Raise some you. fucking kids, you know? <laughs> and you get two kids in the house by yourself having to wake up in the morning, do your job, feed them, uh, take care of them, get them to school, that kind of shit. Come back to me then and tell me that it's anything less than a full-time job. And here's where it becomes important. And this is what I tell everybody who has a parent that I work with. Having parents is tough. I mean, uh, being parents is tough right now, right? It's like, it's hard in the moment. But remember how you grew up? And I want you to think, what do you want your kids to say about their experience growing up 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Do you think your kids are going to be appreciative that you spent more time in the office and made more money and like were able to buy a nicer car? Or are your kids, which to me is the legacy we leave, is the, is the way we affect the earth, are they going to be happier because you took an extra 30 minutes with them to make them a fucking meal and sit with them instead of putting them in front of the TV so you can go back to the office for a minute? Boom. You know, like engagement. Think ahead. Yep. Think ahead. Just like you do in your fucking career. Just think ahead. You're kissing ass to your boss or doing whatever it is you're doing to get the raise. Cool. Do that at work. But then when you come home, how do you show your kid that you really love them? How do you do whatever you need? And by the way, it's a work in progress for me. I got to admit it's because I came from a really achievement based sort of way of looking at it, but I got to be really clear with my kids, right? I love you. I'm here for you. I'll support you. I'm, I'm not, I can't be your crutch. I can't make anything happen for you, but I'm here for you and I love you and whatever I can do to support it so that 20, 30 years from now, they know how much I love them that I, I look at that as my job. So any guy listening, I don't think there's a lot of guys listening to your podcast who don't- No, no, there's already, a lot of guys. Who are, no, I'm saying who don't already see this in the world. But just to be clear, women and the job of raising the next generation and the generation after that, et cetera, the amount of power, the amount of effort, the amount of motivation and perseverance that is required to come out of essentially one of the most traumatic medical experiences you could ever have in your life and then turn right back around and say, I'm in the worst pain I've ever been in, but I'm going to now take care of a baby. We, I can't fathom what that is like. And we need to respect that in, in a way that we probably, I don't know, in a, in a bigger way than you respect the CEO of your fucking company. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Right. The amount of effort and, and just tenacity that it takes to be able to do that is fucking incredible. And I want to honor every woman who's ever done it. Absolutely. I had a, I had a guy, uh, this couple in Turkey, and he started like, you know, he's always talking about how his wife doesn't do anything. She just takes care of the kids. It's not a big deal. It doesn't mean anything. So I sat down with them and I said, okay, we're going to do a thing. You're going to go away to Bodrum. Okay. And you're, you're going to leave him with the kids. And my job is to monitor at the end of your experience with the kids, what do you have to say about your experience? Yeah. And he came back and he was humble as pie. He said, oh my goodness, I had yes. no idea. Yes. We cannot discredit 
we cannot put we cannot put value systems on the weight of someone working and making money to the fact that someone is actually creating a home. Creating a home takes a lot of energy and yeah. it takes a lot of love and it takes a lot of, you know, surveillancing of knowledge and information to be able to create a container for your children. And I love what you said about coming home and engaging your children. One of the biggest things is I work with a lot of kids. Mm. The kids, when they come and talk to me, the thing that they bring up the most, as I know we're coming to the end of our share, but the thing that they bring up the most is I wish my parent would play video games with me. I wish my ki- my parent would sit down and have more fun games at home. Oh, I love that. Not my p- mom works hard. They take me to ballet lessons. They drive me to soccer practice. They think they're being a good parent. This is what kids tell me all the time. Amazing. So I definitely think a restructure is definitely needed. And I just want to let you know, um, I'm so happy to have you on today's share. And also, I can't wait for you and Sophie to be on as a couple yeah. so we can talk more about relationships and totally. everything that you that you both have gone through. Dr. Adi Jaffe, I love you so much. Same. And uh, thank you so much for being. How can, people, how can people get in touch with you and get into what you're doing? So, I mean, the easiest way is adijaffe.com. If, uh, all the stuff, the books, the the courses, the online workshops are there. If people want help from me in the addiction world, I have a, an online program. It's called the Ignited Hero Program. If you look that up, you can see it. But again, it's on adjaffe.com. I wrote a book called The Abstinence Myth about how quitting drugs is not the thing that's going to fix you. It's fixing yourself, which is exactly what we talked about here today. My wife and I do workshops and uh, we have an online workshop that helps couples who are struggling typically uh, in their relationship. And then as... I don't know when this will come out, but in April and probably a few times a year, I will be starting to run these 21-day habit reset challenge for people who are stuck with rituals in their life that are not serving them and helping give them the tools to lift up so that they don't have to get to the point of an addiction. They can actually just lift themselves up far before that and uh, release themselves and get free. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, man. Tribe. How lit are you? I mean, fire is burning. Everything is burning. The old stuff is coming down and new structures are being built. This is what it's about. It's about being alive and staying in truth, authenticity, and really getting into that space, right? It's not about the outside and what you're buying and what you're consuming. It's about you getting in consumption with yourself, internal consumption with yourself, really taking in who you are, why you are, and really getting that clear understanding so that way no one can play manipulative games with you no one can come in and try to like mess up who you are on any level of your life because you're rocking it in an authentic way remember alignment over hustle everyone that's what it's about please 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 follow my brother he is just i mean dope as fuck that's all i gotta say and i love you so much and please if you want to level up your powers go to shamanderek.com sign up on my newsletter to see where i am in town you know check out all the amazing thing that's happening if you want to have real conversations go to my ig live go uh, get on um instagram so that way i can learn from you and hear what you have to say when your life journey and everything until next time i'll see you later alligator 